in first service, I told them that uh, as you read the Gospel of Luke, one thing you want to keep an eye out for is that which was impossible or otherwise extraordinarily difficult for humanity. Take note on how many times God or his son Jesus does it as a matter of course. And that helps understand, you know, Luke was a doctor, but he apparently was moonlighting as a historian. And we say, the Gospel of Luke, it's a history, this kind of as it happened, or uh, the interviews, putting it all together. But at the same time, the theme that he was working the entire time was, God is doing the impossible. And so if you read through the book of Luke, it, it will help you understand certain difficult passages in there if you understand that you know, several times in there you see some comment about, wait, this is impossible, but then God does it anyway, or Jesus does it anyway. So yeah, just nothing hurt. If you, you may, maybe start this time of year, read through a gospel. If you choose Luke, look for the impossible being possible with God. But also this time of year... The kids are putting together their Christmas lists. I bet sitting at the Thanksgiving table at some point, Grandma looked over at the young ones and said, what are your Christmas lists? And the kids probably said something like, Grandma, it's on Amazon. <laughs> Happened to a couple of you. I saw some big nods in first service with that too. You know, they're, they're, they're making up their list, wondering what the new toys or whatever trinkets would be like, and we all did it. How many of you, you know, my age, we called it the Sears Wish Book. A few of you, a little older, it was still called the Sears Catalog. Do you remember us laying there on the floor, just flipping pages, wondering what it would be like to play with those toys? Yep, few more nods, few smiles, some of you not admitting to it, we know. It's a time-honored materialistic tradition. It's enshrined in favorite movies like A Christmas Story. It's practiced by American kids every year. Thinking of what we could have, but don't. And it doesn't go away when we grow up. We call it, instead, keeping up with the Joneses. We can't fall too far behind. Our kids need to be in the same activities, go to good schools or better schools. We need equivalent SUVs and so on. We may not be poring over the Sears catalog but we're keeping an eye out around us. And that even goes beyond our neighborhoods. There's a good chunk of politics nowadays that's driven by that desire. Polemics against wealthy people. Promises of new taxes to fund more giveaways. And people get lambasted. If you don't agree, if you're not engaged in the same envy, you're a bad person. You see, it's not about the G.I. Joe toys or the Barbie toys. So one of my uh, nieces had put the Barbie dream house on there. It's like, it's amazing. Some things never change. But then it becomes not the Barbie dream house, but our dream house. Not Barbie's Corvette. We want the Corvette. And then we see the millionaires and billionaires, and we think we want what they have. A few weeks ago, my, my, my family was down. We were in Miami. And in the port of Miami, there was this really big, good-looking yacht. And I looked up the name of it, and the owner, her last name was Walton. And that, that sound familiar? Yeah, they gave the first syllable of their name to the store, Walmart. It wasn't the biggest one in the harbor. 
And there was news down there at that time that Jeff Bezos of Amazon, he was buying a house on one of the super exclusive islands there in Miami, the most expensive real estate in the United States. And one day, my dad and I were out walking, we come to a gas station, and there's a Rolls-Royce Cullinan, the Rolls-Royce SUV, probably somewhere around 400 grand just sitting there. The Rolls-Royce person was actually pumping his own gas. We see that type of thing and we think, man, what would it be like? Wouldn't it be nice? Because we focus on what we don't have. Last year's toys that you got for Christmas, though it's, that's old hat. The house that used to be good, en- good enough isn't. And so on. Because what we do is we redefine what we have as the baseline. This is the ground upon which we stand. We're not looking at what's underneath it. We're looking at what's above it. We want what's better. We take it for granted. But fact is, things aren't as bad as they seem. We're so so consumed by wanting more, wanting better, that, that we start thinking everything's awful. But do you know that life expectancy is higher than it's ever been by a large margin? And if you live to your 20s, you can expect to live a good, long time, statistically. And we have access to a wider array of entertainment options than any Roman emperor could have ever dreamed. You know, Julius Caesar did not have what we carry in our pockets. He, he would have had musicians, he'd have had a band in there, and he could be, they could be playing, but he could never say, okay, that's enough of classical, now do country. Okay, I've had enough of this. How about a music or how about a movie? And our lives are generally spent in relative comfort. Man, it's been, it, it got a little chilly, didn't it? A few, a few of you may have even seen some flakes this morning. You know, snow, not corn or dandruff, I mean. Head and shoulders, some of you. You know, we have night. We you know, when it's hot or hot out, our, our 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 houses are cool. When it's cold out, our houses are warm. You know, life is really pretty good for us. But we think everything is awful because we focus on what's going wrong. Our news. You know, what's on the news? Is it good news or bad news all the time? Yeah, it's never good news. Or the good news is so small and so pathetic. It's just like, well, this isn't going to do any good. And if you're on social media, we get spoon-fed things that are designed to make us angry. You know, if you get on Twitter or Facebook, it's showing you stuff to drive up your blood pressure, to make you mad because that gets you engaged and then they get ad views. It's just like on the news. Bad news, folks, sells ads. No wonder we as a culture have no concept of gratitude. I mean, this time of year, how many people? You, okay, I do a lot of online shopping. I know some of you do online shopping. What have your inboxes looked like the last week? Absolutely inundated, right? Four or five ads from the same store in one day. None of them are ever. Hey, we're glad you're our customer. We're not asking for anything. Just you be you. No, it's always, we've got these great deals, and if you don't click now, 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 you'll miss it. 
And you don't click and you get another email five minutes later and you're like, I thought I had missed it. I wanted to miss it. Quit sending me emails. At least when they had to buy a stamp to do it, there was a limit to what they could fill in our, fill our mailboxes with. So, of course, we don't understand gratitude because we're always focused on what could be better, what we're missing. And these aren't new dynamics. At one point in the history of God's people, the nation of Israel, they had just been released from slavery in Egypt. And it's interesting sometimes to think, you know, what would it have been like to be one of these Israelites walking out of Egypt? You have just seen your God pour out his power on your behalf. You know, when that you 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 saw the hail falling from the skies and killing everybody else's cattle but yours. You had seen things dark where the where the Egyptians were, but light in your area. You had seen the rivers turn to blood. You had heard the cries as families discovered that their firstborn children were dead. And as you pack to leave, you're given great wealth from your captors. I mean, they. When the Israelites left, friends, they didn't walk out with just their shirts on their backs. Their Egyptian captors were giving them their valuables, you know, the family silver, their gold jewelry. That's what they used to make the, the things for the tabernacle. And they didn't use it all. They walked out with incredible wealth. And then when they walked out, they walked on dry ground looking up at the Red Sea on each side. That must have been weird. I've said before, I would have been the Yahoo who walked over and just. (laughs) Philip, would you knock it off? (laughs) They'd been given water from a rock and they waked to food on the ground, divinely provided to keep them going. They're headed to a promised land where they're going to enjoy God's protection and God's prosperity. You would think that they would be thrilled. You would think they would be happy. You would think that they would be overcome with gratitude at every moment. In the vernacular of today's young people, lol, nope. No, they're normal people. Of course they're not thrilled. Of course they're not overwhelmed with gratitude. They're just folks. Right now, I'm thankful there's water in the pulpit. In Numbers chapter 11, we see what went through their minds as they're experiencing all this. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the place, name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. For now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. They've got all of that going for them. And they get stirred up to complain. Did you notice? They are pining for the days of captivity. You know, we may have been slaves... We may have had to make bricks for them. We may have been at the, at the mercy of our taskmasters, but at least we had garlic. 
Yeah, sounds a little silly, doesn't it? It's supposed to sound ludicrous, because it is. They're ignoring the backbreaking labor. They're, they're choosing not to remember the decrees that none of their sons should be allowed to live after birth. They just remember a varied and diverse menu of free food. I mean, we're talking the people that anything could go on, and they're still the ones posting pictures of their plates to Instagram. Who cares about the slavery? The promised land smells like, you know, sounds like a farce. I miss the cucumbers and the melons. You know, sometimes we forget the words of the prophet Billy Joel. The good old days weren't always good. They're thinking about the good old days a few months ago when they could eat whatever they wanted just so long as they had worked. Their focus is not on what they have. It's not on the promises of God. Their focus is on what they think they've lost. And it's a pretty rosy view at that. We, we get a rosy view of the past sometimes. Car guys will see this happen a lot. You know, you see people, oh, I miss the old cars. You know, and you think, oh, the cars are 50 years ago. No, 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 no. 50 years ago was the 70s. Nobody's pining for those. Big old land yachts, the curb feelers. Yeah, nobody misses that. You got to go back another 20 years, back into the 50s, 70 years ago, back when Buicks had teeth. You know, the styling, people miss that, but then you forget every 5,000 miles you had to fix your ignition points. You had to tweak your carburetor. You were lucky if your car wasn't just an absolute rusted hulk at 50,000 miles. God forbid you get into a wreck, all that pretty chrome goes right through your chest cavity quite nicely. I mean, nowadays, modern car, it's more efficient, it's more comfortable, you'll run it to 100,000 miles, barely needing anything other than oil changes, and it's still good after that. By just about any metric, modern car's way better, but we have this rosy view of the past. And the Israelites, they're out there eating divinely provided manna every morning. Oh, I miss the onions and the garlic. There's no gratitude to God there, despite what he had done for them. They have lost track of God's blessings. And friends, if we lose track of God's blessings, that means we lose gratitude. When we forget what God has done for us, when we're not focusing on it, we are going to see our gratitude to God dissipate. They wanted variety. And rather than voice that desire in an appreciation for what they had, you know, they, could, they could have said, you know, God, we're really appreciative for this. We're looking forward to the promised land. This man is kind of amazing stuff. But we know you're God. We know you can provide a lot. Could you... Uh, Vary the menu a little, please. You know, I think they'd have gotten a different reaction. It's like we humans rework the song to say, count your problems one by one. You'll be annoyed at what God ain't done. And boy, isn't that how we work. 
The times when I have seen people in church just get really sour and get really grumpy, it's because we're looking at what God hasn't done for us. We're thinking he ought to do more. We're thinking things ought to be different. We're looking at what we don't have. It's a human desire. It's a human problem. We look at what we're missing, not at what we enjoy. The good news is it doesn't have to be this way. It may be a common human failing, but it's treatable. Yes, we have that tendency to be greedy and ungrateful, so God shows his people how to be grateful. In fact, as you look over the law of the Old Testament, you start finding festivals intended to teach gratitude. It's like God looked at the people and said, you're not happy, you're not grateful, I'll teach you to be happy. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, it talks about what we call the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It says, you shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days when you've gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. You shall rejoice in your feast. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. God focuses the people on where they had been and has them look to what is right in front of them. He says, look, once a year when you've pulled in the harvest and you're thinking, wow, things are going really good. You're going to look at it and you're going to celebrate and there's going to be a party. Some of the festivals were pretty solemn, somber affairs. The Feast of Booths, guys. Party time. Even today, the Jews celebrate this. And if you look elsewhere when talking where God lays out rules for this, he says, this is the time to eat the fat, to enjoy the good cuts of meat. You know, you're not just eating the beef tongue. It's time for the ribeye, folks. And all the people said, amen, yeah. Oh, yeah, the good cuts. Because that's what this was. It was a way to rejoice. It was a way for the people, a time for them, that they were to look at what God had done for them. You know, they were to remember all the wanderings by going out and having a little camp out in the backyard. God changes their location. He changes their focus. Because gratitude doesn't just happen. Because if they look to what God's doing for them, if they take their eyes from what they're missing to what they have, they have joy, they have gratitude. They see, hey, God's done a lot for us. You know, nowadays we talk about, you know, harvest festivals. And you know, here in the suburbs, like, harvest? We didn't harvest at squat, folks. I got in-laws with a farm. Believe me, they're partying. My mother-in-law looks over the yields of the corn. She's like, (laughs) woohoo! We just drove back from Minneapolis and coming down, I could see some combines still harvesting corn. And well, that's a little light. But they're still happy to get it in the grain bins. They look at what God has done. They think, man, this is wonderful. And if we continue on to the New Testament times, we see this continuing. 
You see, the Apostle Paul, he had a lot of reasons to complain. He had a lot of reasons to say, you know, look, things aren't good. He'd been hated. He'd been jailed. He'd been nearly murdered. He didn't choose this. God drafted him. I got to choose to be a preacher. Some days I wonder why. No. I'm only half joking with that. But Paul, he didn't get to choose. God tapped him on the shoulder, whacked him over the head, said, all right, you're doing my job. And it wasn't fun. That man was at the center of a ton of riots. I mean, most people only get to be at the center of one. I mean, if Paul came to town, the one thing you knew was going to happen, you're going to have trouble. He'd get arrested. He'd get beaten. A few times, they tried to kill him. Stoned, left for dead. But as he wrote to the church in Philippi, there's no grumblings here. There's no complaining as he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, Paul, he's not looking to what he doesn't have. As he's writing these words, he's supervised by a guard. He's in prison. I'm given to understand that prison isn't fun. Some of you probably know that firsthand. Just knowing some of you, I'm guessing, but it probably ain't that far off. Nobody ever says, woohoo, I'd like to go to jail tonight. You know, it'd feel good some uh, handcuffs right about now. No. No, nobody says that. But as he writes this, we tend to misuse this passage because, well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That means I can ask for this raise. I can do this. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, I can be content through Christ who strengthens me. Whether things are going well or things are going badly, I can be content because of Christ. Sometimes we're so busy looking at what we don't have, even if everything goes well, we complain. My dad likes to say, some people, you give them a gold bar, they're going to complain about the weight and the color. You met them? Yeah, you met those people. You can do something great for them. And they will find a reason to whine. But Paul says, it doesn't matter whether things are going great or whether things are going bad. It doesn't matter that I'm in prison. It doesn't matter. None of that matters because I got Jesus. You see, he's looking to what God has done for him. God is his strength. God is his provider. And the result is contentment. And that's why a few verses earlier, he's able to tell this church to pray with thanksgiving. A church that's concerned for his welfare, that wants to help him out, but they know they don't have a lot of influence. They don't have a lot of resources. But he says, be thankful. That even as they make requests to give thanks. Friends, gratitude isn't just something available for those rare few who have everything. We think we'll be thankful when we have it all. But we end up saying things just like, you know, if we, if we get, have it almost, have almost everything, 
an industrialist, I forget his name, said once, I don't want all the land in the world, just whatever touches mine. Really rich dude, had huge holdings. He still wasn't, wasn't satisfied. Friends, if we got to wait until we have everything, we're never going to have everything. No, gratitude is for all God's people. Because we see what God has done for us, we understand that we may not have everything in the world, but folks, we got what matters. Our eternity is secure, our sins are forgiven, our Father is the creator of all, and He provides for us. Well, you may not have something that says Rolls Royce on it, but you got something that matters. And there's no shortage of passages telling us to be grateful or giving reasons to be grateful. When, you know, when I started working on this message, I was like, man, the, the hard part about preaching a sermon on gratitude is not putting it together. It is figuring out what you're leaving out. Because there's passage upon passage talking about gratitude, and the challenge is, leave, is ending up with something manageable, something that doesn't last an hour. In the first service, I succeeded. We'll see how this one goes. Hope you're comfy. Because there's examples in the Bible also of people being ungrateful or people being grateful and how that panned out. And there's no shades of gray. We always see those who are grateful being commended. Those who are ungrateful, those who are greedy getting smacked down. We're always told constantly to be grateful. And even today, I think what we are to do is to be grateful followers of Jesus. We're coming off celebrating Thanksgiving, and we're about ready to go into Christmas where we celebrate God's greatest gift by twisting it into materialism. How do you celebrate Jesus? Well, it's about presents. Any of you watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade? A few of you watch that? It is amazing to me how we celebrate the birth of Christ as a culture while completely removing every reference to him. You know, Lindsay and I like going down to Disney. Disney Christmas, oh, it's pretty, it's nice. There's nothing about Jesus there. Hallmark movies. Oh, yeah. you ever notice always a small town Christmas? I want, I want to see, you know, a Hallmark celebrates a big city Christmas. No. But they're never remembering Jesus. They're always lighting candles and, you know, being at tree farms. We celebrate, our culture celebrates the birth of Jesus by removing every reference to him. Remember this, friends. Anything God does for us, Satan will pervert. Anything good that God does, any good and perfect gift from the Lord, Satan will absolutely twist beyond all recognition. Yes, we're celebrating the, the birth of the Son of God, the greatest gift he's ever given. And we do this coming out of talking about how we should be thankful because God has blessed us with so much. And what do we turn it into? Buy, 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 buy. What do you not have that you want? Get a little something for yourself while you're buying gifts for friends. Our culture is absolutely mental. 
this is a time for us to consider gratitude, not as a one-day-a-year holiday, not as a month-long preparation for a holiday, but as a daily practice. Friends, we ought to be grateful more than just in November. People do the little Facebook challenge, you know, 30 days of gratitude. Yeah, how about 365? Next year's a leap year. You got to think up one more reason to be grateful. Good luck. It's an election year. I'm thankful all the politicians are far away. (laughs) How can we be grateful? How can we be a grateful follower of Jesus in a culture that is constantly wanting more? Well, plan your gratitude. We do this with the meal, don't we? How many of y'all woke up Thursday morning and said, well, what are we having for lunch today? No, Sunday it was like time to thaw the turkey. I saw what the grocery stores were like all week. This past week is the one where the only safe day to buy anything food-wise is like Friday. Because everybody's got nothing but got tons of leftovers and they're all busy raiding Walmart. Plan it out. Make, Make gratitude a common part of your prayers. Take time to be thankful. Maybe even rebalance things. So you're not just asking but giving thanks and maybe saying, you know, hey, what have I asked God for? Did he grant it? If yes, be thankful. If no, and you recognize the reason why, you know, maybe that wasn't a great idea, be thankful. If he said no and you still don't understand, be thankful. Because there's still a reason. Plan that gratitude. Be deliberate, make space for it. And recognize your reasons for gratitude. Don't look to what we don't have. I mean, yes, we always yearn for more. I'm not saying any desire for more is bad. Folks, don't misunderstand me. But at the same time, you can say, you know, I'm really grateful for what I've got. And like we sing sometimes, count your many blessings. Oh, that's just silly, is it? What's silly is the wealthiest people on the face of the earth, more prosperous than this planet has ever known, are just absolutely consumed with more. That's silly. And if we count our deficiencies, we're always going to end up depressed. If you stand in front of the mirror and be like, well, where am I not perfect? Oh, you're going to find reasons. I got wrinkles, I got spots, I got pains, bunches and lots. Yeah, we got a bunch of that. But you're not inspecting the grass from the underside. When we count our blessings, friends, we are filled up. We are lifted up when we say, here's what God has done for me. I'm going to take a moment. I'm going to be thankful for my wife, for my family, for a good roof over my head. I'm going to be thankful that I'm reasonably healthy. I'm be thankful that I might have hurts, but they're not constant. I'm going to be thankful that I have glasses, even if i got to clean them a lot. 
and practice your gratitude. Go ahead and give thanks, not just yearly, but daily. And do it in the little ways. You ever notice that nobody starts off running a marathon by saying, well, i got to run 26.2 miles. Tomorrow I'm running 20 miles. No, they got to start off with a lot less than that. Olympics are coming up this year, this next year. Saw an ad for that. You know, the weightlifters for Summer, summer Olympics, they, the first time they live, lift weights, it's not 100-pound dumbbells. You start small, and you build. You want to practice your gratitude, folks, start in a small way. When, when that waiter at lunch brings you a, a refill on your drink, do you say thank you? It seems little... But you're going to be a lot easier table to deal with if you do that than the one over there where they're constantly wanting this, that, and the other. Folks, the little things add up into big habits. Habits always start small. If you want a habit of gratitude, practice gratitude in the small ways. Say, thank you. Don't just rush. But take that half a second. And that will build. And as you pile up those small things, it becomes a large habit. It becomes a lifestyle. You become that grateful follower because you're not just thanking people around you. As you become more and more grateful, you're thanking God. And that's a whole different attitude than someone who's always looking for more. That's what God wants from us. You know, we're talking about these spiritual disciplines, ways to grow closer to God. We start in small ways. And if we're that grateful people God wants, friends, we're going to be close to him. Stand with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done. We praise you for you've redeemed us in your son. We, 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 we're so thankful that we get to look forward to eternity with you. Lord, help us to be grateful, even in the small ways. Help us to be that grateful people, thankful for you have blessed us. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.